0: bulletproof radio a state of high performance
1: you're listening to bulletproof radio with dave asprey today's cool fact of the day is yet again about gut bacteria because those little bastards are doing all sorts of things in your life that you probably didn't know in this case the gut bacteria have just upended hundreds of billions of dollars of well drug research, to put it in the best possible way. That's because a new study found that gut bacteria can modify huge numbers of drugs, and the genetic makeup of your microbiota predicts your response to medications. And the amazing scientists, who were only a little bit cowardly so they could get their next grant, said in the quote that they, quote, may predict your response to medications, even though they just freaking proved Beyond any reasonable doubt that gut bacteria metabolize and change medications before your body can use them. However, they may predict. Whatever the may is, let's stop using weasel words, my friends. We just uh, just broke a lot of medical research. This is from Yale. They tested the ability of 76 kinds of bacteria, which is a selection of bacteria to represent the microbe diversity of the human gut. Although, frankly, if you do it right, you can have more diversity. My number is 196. And you could do that to, they found that that 76 different type of bacteria mix altered the molecular structure of 271 oral drugs, everything from hormones to antiviral medications. And they did that in only 12 hours in test tubes. About two-thirds of the drugs they tested were modified by at least one strain of bacteria, and each strain of bacteria could modify 11 to 95 different drugs. And then the next step was a series of experiments with different medications. They monitored the entire microbial population in fecal samples to see what it would do to the drugs. And it turns out that it's one thing if bacteria A does something to uh, to say, an antibiotic, that's maybe a bad example, we'll say to metformin. But if bacteria A turns metformin into something and bacteria B turns that thing into something and bacteria C turns into something else that's toxic to bacteria D that was responsible for making a good compound in your body, what you have is a system effect, a network effect, and everything in your body is actually a system. And that's why systems biology uh, is such an, imort- an important thing to do and it requires massive amounts of computational uh, abilities as well as interesting machine learning algorithms as well as the ability to actually genetically sequence large numbers of bacteria. So it's kind of cool. We can do this now. We couldn't do it 10 years ago. What this means though is that pretty soon your doctor's gonna need to look at your poop to tell you whether any medication works for you or not. And that means all those studies saying this population of, or sorry, this medication does something for this population of people, it's probably BS. Just like the studies that say, oh, kale is good for you. Like, oh, a third of people can't metabolize oxalic acid. For you guys, it could cause, oh, gout, kidney stones, or my favorite condition you don't want from kale, called vulvodynia. That would be the formation of uric acid in the vulva in a woman, which is an exceptionally painful condition that results in, well, difficulty sitting down and wearing underwear and things like that. So go kale, all right. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial. And today's guest is interesting because he's a doctor who says you don't have to eat your vegetables. And if you've read some of my posts and all, you know I've gone pretty deep on the I didn't eat my vegetables either path a while back. I'm talking about a guy named Paul Saladino, a certified functional medicine practitioner in Seattle, who focuses on in-depth study of both behavior in humans and diseases, and he's pretty unusual because he's quite an explorer, spent six years adventuring, hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and became a physician's assistant, practiced in cardiology, then became an MD, then became a functional medicine certified MD, and is now doing a psychiatric residency which is a very unusual path, and he's looking, what's the root cause of why we do what we do, and what can we do beyond pharmacology? And he's probably best known because he talks about nutritional biochemistry and the carnivore diet, which is our main focus. Welcome to the show, Paul. It's so good to be here, my friend. Now, I just realized, you're in Seattle. I am in Seattle. What a waste. I was in Seattle yesterday. Why didn't I just interview you in person? Uh, I would have loved that. (laughs) Well, uh, next time we uh, are both in Seattle at the same time, let's go to Carnivore, the restaurant. Have you been there? I would
2: love to do that. I have not been there, but I'll tell you what, Dave. I am moving to San Diego in one week.
1: Well, you suck. Too bad. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I love San Diego, too. Uh, I'm down there pretty frequently. I have a bunch of friends there. Uh, well, uh, Carnivore in uh, Seattle has all grass fed meat, and the founder shut down a couple bars after reading the Bulletproof Diet and benefiting. And you go there, and she'll tell you, I hunted this deer myself, and things like that before you eat. It's kind of cool. Uh, so maybe in your one week of time left, you can do it. Maybe so. All right. Before we get into the cool carnivore diet things, uh, one of the things that attracted me to having you on the show was that when you hiked the 2700 mile Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada, you did something that few people have done and everyone I know who's done it it always talks about this incredible focus on fuel and efficiency and how you feel every day because all you have is just 12 hours of walking every day and did I walk well, did it hurt, did it not hurt, was I tired, Uh, those sorts of things become top of mind. What did you learn that you didn't expect to learn when you walked the trail?
2: Pacific Crest Trail was an incredible experience. There were many lessons that I learned on the PCT. Regarding food, what I learned was that I never got sick of animal foods. And this is probably something that you maybe weren't even anticipating me saying. But as I was going through the trail, I had packed all of my food for the trail and sent it to myself at 27 resupplies along the route. And I got so sick of every single thing I had sent myself, but I never got sick of jerky or other animal foods. I looked forward to those the whole time. But believe it or not, I got sick of peanut butter. Oh yeah, I never thought I would get sick of peanut butter. And this was years ago, mind you. This was 20 years ago that I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, so I had no inkling of a nose to tail carnivore diet in my mind at the time. But in retrospect, it kind of, there's a little bit of foreshadowing there. I got sick of every food that I had packed. And granted, I was trying to pack whole foods. I wasn't trying to pack processed foods. I was trying to eat as well as I could imagine at that time during the Pacific Crest Trail. But all I wanted to eat were animal foods after the first, I don't know, a thousand miles or so.
1: It's pretty well known. Uh, My dad was a long-distance backpacker uh, more than I was, uh, but I've I've done some decent hikes, including Annapurna Circuit and stuff like that. And people oftentimes resort to carrying sticks of butter or ghee or little bottles of olive oil. So I'll just take a couple swigs because the caloric density of straight oil is about as good as it gets. And at a certain point, you are turning food into electrons. And the more electrons in your food, the more you can make of them when you don't want to carry a bunch of, I'm going to call it carbohydrate empty calories there, even if there's some nutrients in them or not, it doesn't really matter. They're empty calories because they have less calories per gram than fat. In fact, maybe, is that the new definition of empty calorie?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's less than fat is empty? Uh, pretty much. less uh, you know, calories. <laughs> Those are weenie calories.
1: Nice. <laughs> Although, I hate to say it, but if you're eating nose to tail, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they have hot dogs now. uh Okay, so so you learned that you wanted jerky, um, but you got tired of peanut butter and you got tired of crackers and dehydrated noodles and all the other crap that they. Uh, I found the more I got into just controlling how I felt uh, that when I would go backpacking, i I looked at what was in the processed garbage that they that they serve and said, I'm not going to do this. So I would find myself, you know, like you, eating jerky. I found a way to, uh, for about a week, uh, to preserve a, a a hunk of filet mignon. <laughs> if you dehydrated it with enough stuff on the outside of it, uh, it would essentially be something that you could uh, uh, cook in in store for an amazing amount of time. Uh, but I I just stopped eating the garbage, and my performance went up. My knees didn't hurt. I felt so much better. Uh, to the point that even when I was in Tibet, I, you know, I had some protein powder. I had some you know, certain types of nuts and things that worked much better than the local you know, ramen. Um, so you discovered that. What got you into the carnivore side of things? That's pretty out there. I, I've been following the space for a long time. I've dabbled, but you're not just dabbling. Like I've got a medical degree, and I'm telling you to you know throw down uh, your your vegetables. And you know, the you're famous for saying. With famous in some circles, for saying, every vegetable positive has a higher net negative. How how did you get there from, I hiked the PCT eating peanut butter?
2: It's an interesting journey. I think it has all been based on the fact that I am fascinated by what makes things work and what makes things not work. I think that, perhaps a little bit like you, I'm probably an engineer at heart, maybe a mechanic. I really... (laughs) I really see myself as a human mechanic rather than a physician. And so throughout my training, when I was a physician assistant, I began to realize this, and then I went back to medical school at the University of Arizona because I was dissatisfied with the paradigm that I saw as a physician assistant. I don't think anyone will argue with me when I suggest that most of Western medicine just looks to ameliorate symptoms with pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And that wasn't interesting to me or satisfying. It didn't feel good in my gut or my heart. I wanted to understand what was causing patients to be sick at the root and be able to affect that. That's been the driving factor for me throughout my education. And that's really led me to some strange and wild jungles of thought. So I was a physician assistant working in cardiology, quickly realized that giving people statins and ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers was not correcting their root cause of their illness. There had to be something else going on. I thought, I'm going back to medical school. It was about at that point that I discovered functional medicine, which is root cause-based medicine, and began to explore the, the thinking in functional medicine and the tools that functional medicine had to address what might be root causes. Functional medicine talks about elimination diets. It talks about food allergy. It talks about gut flora, inflammatory, organisms in the gut, toxic metals, and I thought, okay, that's a good start. And I did everything I could from a functional medicine perspective for many of my patients, and they just still weren't getting better in the way that I hoped they would. And what I saw in medical school, what I saw in residency, which I'm finishing this week, by the way. Congrats. Yeah, so I'm done. I've been at the University of Washington for four years, finishing residency this week, and as I mentioned, I'm moving to San Diego to open a private practice there and surf a lot. And it just—it was this constant disillusionment, this constant disappointment, like, I am doing everything that I think is right, and people are still not getting better, and what I saw persisting was chronic inflammation and autoimmunity, and I would argue that those are essentially synonyms, that autoimmunity is chronic inflammation, and that what we are dealing with in Western medicine is a tidal wave of chronic inflammation, a tidal wave of autoimmunity. You think they're really and, the
1: same, like identical?
2: Essentially, right? Well, I mean, you can
1: cause chronic chronic inflammation by inhibiting mitochondrial function without triggering any immune behaviors.
2: Well, I think that a lot of the signals from the immune system come from the mitochondria. I mean, that's what reactive oxygen species do, right? They affect everything. It's hard to trigger mitochondrial dysfunction and not get cytokine abnormalities. uh, The immune system is always talking.
1: Right, but are cytokine abnormalities autoimmunity or are they just cytokine abnormalities?
2: Well, if you're having cytokine abnormalities, then the immune cells are talking to each other in a different way. It's a little uh, bit of like... That's what you're saying. So nuance, basically the right? presence
1: of extra free radicals is, uh, well, it may not be classical autoimmunity where you've got right. you know antibodies to your thyroid isn't going to happen if you inhibited mitochondrial function for a short period using hydrogen sulfide or something.
2: Right. Okay. But if we're thinking about both innate and adaptive immune responses, you know, the you can get those adaptive immune responses are typically what we think of as traditional autoimmunity but i would argue that innate immune response dendritic cells macrophages that's autoimmunity too and that kind of gets to this broader definition of autoimmunity the immune system is involved and dysregulated okay it's just yeah, this concept that it's all kind of connected
1: yeah a dysregulated immune system i, I like it and i uh, maybe i just have a a too strict of a semantic definition. If you're listening, you're going, what are you dorks talking about? Here's the deal, uh, doesn't matter uh, if, if your body is attacking a specific part of the body, the immune system is attacking a specific part of the body versus the immune system is jacked up, so you have inflammation everywhere. Bottom line is, I, I would agree very much with what Paul's saying here, uh, which is that if you have inflammation everywhere, things are broken and you better fix it, and you can call it whatever you wanna call it, uh, including unicorn flu, uh, <laughs> but you better you better solve the inflammation problem. Uh, and when you do that, everything else gets into alignment. Is that am I am I finding? Absolutely. There? All right.
2: Absolutely. Yep. Electronic high five. Boom. Uh, just <laughs> nice. gave each other knuckles through the knuckles through the Internet. Uh, yes. And so what I became more and more focused on was interventions that I could use to modulate inflammation autoimmunity. And what I quickly realized, even early on in my training when I was in medical school, was that food was the lever that I was most fascinated by. Food was the main thing. And you can do it. It's the biggest lever. It's the biggest lever. Food is a huge, huge lever. And so that's been the iteration in my mind, is how am I built to eat? How are humans built to eat? And that was really what led me to hypotheses around a carnivore diet, thinking, wait a minute, maybe this is the idea, maybe this is what's going on here, that we have been in this arms race with plants as humans for millions of years, we sort of had this evolutionary history coming from primates where we were eating a lot of vegetable and plant matter, moving to humans as homo sapiens, well previously homo erectus and homo habilis, four million to two million years ago, and we saw this huge expansion of the human brain, and that was because we were eating animals most likely, this is all hypothetical, but there's so many convincing theories now that it was animal nutrients, density of calories, that allowed our brains to just grow in size and humans to generate a neocortex to move out of the trees and become hunters. There was something magical about eating animals. And then was, I heard these
1: stories. Uh, yeah. Oh, didn't mean to interrupt you. There's something magic about cooking them, too.
2: <laughs> well, we can talk about that. We yeah, can actually I, I, I talk I wanna about that. I want to go there with you. Yeah, yeah, we should. There are these theories about the cooking of food, and um, I have some interesting thoughts about that, too. And as I was sort of mulling over that, I hear Jordan Peterson and Michaela Peterson talking on Joe Rogan about the improvement in their recalcitrant autoimmune conditions by eliminating plants from their diet. And I thought, maybe that's, that's really cool. Throughout the history of my training, I've always been fascinated by any intervention, whether it was a vegan diet or a bulletproof diet or a paleo diet or any of these things that helped people anecdotally and of one case study, improve autoimmunity improve chronic inflammation, all that. I want, to, I want to study that. I want to study that and see what's going on there. All of those are valuable anecdotes. So when I heard about this with a carnivore diet, and we can talk about how I would formulate a carnivore diet, for me, it's much more than just meat. It's like this nose to tail, as you suggested. So that was really fascinating to me, and I went down that rabbit hole, and I've just been on this magical unicorn journey, you know, it's been a great experience it's led me to learn about all sorts of cool things as i'm exploring this hypothesis that for some people for all people plants are kind of out to get us and they don't want us to eat them it comes with all these corollary questions which i'm sure we'll dive into and that perhaps animals really are the source of the optimal food for humans
1: well i uh, i love the mindset that an- or that plants don't want us to eat them and i, I go back to Emergent behaviors from uh, complex systems, and uh, there's a guy named Stephen Wolfram who proved. This is the guy who created Mathematica, which is this math simulation software used in almost all advanced engineering and science and biology degrees to model behaviors. And he showed, look, you want to make something that looks like a really amazing complex flower? You take these four rules and just do them over and over billions or trillions of times, and these amazing complex patterns emerge from simple rules. And I think that the basic plant emergent behavior is, I can't run away because I'm rooted, so number one rule is don't die, which means don't get eaten. And this is why, if, if, if you're listening to this, like Dave, what, what's up with this? I'm, all I'm gonna tell you is go outside, find any plant around you, just a tree, a weed, Take a handful of it, put it in your mouth and chew it and see what happens, right? The vast majority of plants, you could die, you will shit yourself silly, uh, and you could go to the hospital. Uh, no joke. <laughs> That's how strong of a pattern this is. <laughs> so Totally true. Th- there's credibility here. There's a reason, th- there's an explanation, and then there's a test that we can all do that I don't recommend you do because you'll feel really unwell. One leaf of of a certain plants, in fact, very common plants, will give you really severe gut cramps. So please listen to what we're talking about here because this is the world you live in. You just never thought of it that way. All right, so assuming we got our listeners past that first, what the heck is going on here? Um, I was a raw vegan, I, I'm gonna call myself a devout raw vegan. Uh, and then I had tried everything. I swallowed an electrical stimulation device, like a TENS device from Russia, to see if I could increase peristalsis. My digestion had been ruined by 15 years of antibiotics. In uh, the raw vegan diet, man, I felt good for a little while, and it really wrecked my health over time. So I said, all right, uh, I am familiar with this grass-fed stuff in the very early days of grass-fed and all. So I said, I'm gonna go back to being omnivorous, but raw still has to matter. So I ate raw meat. I raw steak, I would marinate it in vinegar sometimes, uh, raw eggs, you know, raw fish, raw lamb, uh, raw pork, probably not a really good idea unless you know where it's from. Uh, and raw chicken, I actually did do it a few times, but it's a stupid thing to do. I, I think eating raw chicken is just a terrible idea because of the amount of viruses that chicken have, plus they're dinosaurs, they're not that compatible with you. Um, into that, uh, of all that stuff, I went to a place where you couldn't get raw meat and I started eating cooked meat again, that would be Tibet. Uh, and just decided it wasn't worth it. But having gone down the path of raw versus cooked meat and the original all carnivore guy was Angelo Vonderplomper or whatever, I I can never say his name right, but you know his name.
2: Vonderplanets. Vonderplanets. Agenous Vonderplanets. So so you must
1: have come across the raw carnivore diet before you settled on the nose-to-tail carnivore diet where you are now. Why do you cook your meat?
2: This is a very interesting question and it has many corollary discussions connected with it. I think that in today's day and age, we basically cook our meat for cleanliness, to eliminate uh, pathogens on the surface of the meat. I will tell you that I eat raw egg yolks. Oh yeah. Fairly fairly commonly with reckless abandon and much enjoyment. In fact, I eat raw duck egg yolks. Oh yeah, too. (laughs) Yeah, they're amazing. They make ice cream. They, they're they fantastic. You can almost cut them with a knife. They're so viscous and rich. I don't eat the white raw because of this compound avidin and yes. the white that binds biotin. And I don't think raw chicken or duck whites are compatible. But I eat the yolks raw because it tastes better that way. Many of the compounds in the yolk are at least partially heat labile, degraded by heat. And I just find it to be simple and easy. I also do eat raw liver from time to time fairly frequently. It's disgusting. So. It's really good, Dave. You like it? When we hang out, yes, yeah, it's grown on me. There's a whole hashtag on Instagram now, hashtag frozen liver gang. Yeah,
1: I used to do that. For years, I'd freeze my chunks of liver. Yeah. uh, But the, I finally, I just started taking powdered powdered liver, like desiccated liver capsules, because it's easier. But the reason I think it's gross is I would take slices when I was a omnivore, and I never liked it. But one time I said, I could just, take this whole young lamb liver, I put it in a blender with some vinegar and some water and I, and some salt maybe, blended it up and then and I went to drink it and it it was even worse than before. And, and as I'm drinking it, one of those like stringy bits of connective tissues like caught halfway in my tooth. I still have nightmares about raw liver and you're telling me, okay you, you freeze it and take it as capsules but do you have some recipe for raw liver to, to make you happy?
2: No, you just uh you just eat it like you just eat it like the primal caveman that you you're, are. Like you're you just more eat it like the I am. the apex predator. <laughs> so <laughs> I will what I'll do is I'll, so I'll tell people about raw liver because as a physician it's very tenuous and I do not recommend eating raw liver to anyone because you will get sick. But it is something that I have experimented with. And I will go to the butcher and I learn about the, the diseases that cows can get in their livers, and there are liver flukes, but what I learned is that you can see when the fluke is in the liver, there are scars, there are streaks. So it teaches me about what a healthy animal liver looks like, and you can see if the liver's healthy. Then you freeze it for a certain amount of time, just like you might do with salmon to eliminate pathogens. People don't need to eat liver raw in order to get the nutrients, but we will talk about nose tail carnivore, but liver is very nutritious, even cooked. Yes. The desiccated capsules are great, um, I think, but I'm kind of always, I'm, I think of myself as the astronaut, right? Like I'm going to the carnivore moon. Yeah. We got to try it, right? Yeah. The carnivore moon is made of raw liver just in case people want to know. <laughs> and I'm out there exploring no, it's it. It's not grass fed cheese. Up. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's not made of cheese. Carnivore moon is made of raw liver. So I want to go back want and explore and bring things back. I do eat most of my meat cooked, but I will eat my steaks pretty darn rare. Not always blue rare, but. Mid rare things like that, especially if it's a really good quality steak like a Wagyu or something like that. Now, basically, what I'm doing there is I'm just searing the outside of the meat to get rid of any bacteria that are on the outside of the meat, but I'm not heating often, I'm not heating the interior of the meat far enough to kill things that are in the inside of the meat. And I think that most meat in the United States is of high enough quality, especially the grass fed organic stuff that I'm seeking out because I am trying to get really good meat that you're not gonna find any real pathogens in the meat. They do occur, but in the herds in the US, they're very rare. So I'm basically kind of sterilizing the outside of the meat and that's it.
1: You know what I would do uh, when I was really doing the raw thing heavily is I would make an iodine tincture. So I'd I'd put a few drops of Lugol's iodine in water and I'd drop the steak into the water and slosh it around for a little while. And that is how you sterilize water that might have a little bit of poop in it. And as a backpacker, you know very well how to use iodine to sterilize water. You can have yeah, to sterilize your meat too, as long as you're only worried about the surface.
2: I think this brings up the interesting discussion of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. We don't have to go down the yeah. rabbit hole too deeply, but it's something that I talk about with carnivore diets. You know, I was on, you know, I was on another podcast and the person I was on the podcast with said, oh, he doesn't believe in those. And I said, yes, I do. Like we need to think about the way that these molecules Molecules that are formed by cooking on the yeah. surface of the meat affect us as humans. And so, what I recommend to people is they're aware they shouldn't be charring their meat, and we should do strategies to mitigate the amount of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. Part of the diet,
1: Cooking matters. Like,
2: who would have thought that deep frying something
1: or cooking it at eleven hundred degrees might create a different outcome than gently cooking it uh, at you know, two hundred degrees? Like,
2: it's just chemistry, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chemistry, chemistry rules. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs>
1: Uh, I I love it that you're talking about those. That's one of the concerns I have with uh, uh paleo, and even just keto. People, yeah, barbecue time. Uh, you know they they go out there and they're eating massive amounts of of just meat, uh, just the muscle meat, and they're burning it and and they're cooking it in ways that really are not going to lead to anything but cancer.
2: Uh, how worried about PAHs and uh, PCAs are you? I'm very worried about them and I take okay. many steps intentionally in my life to mitigate it and to really, really limit my own exposure. I've seen a number of guys in the space talk about these Traeger smokers, you know, and a lot of guys I'm good friends with talk about them. And I'm thinking, no, it's wow. a horrible idea. Bad news. Bad, bad, bad idea. Yeah. Bad idea. I don't even grill my meat anymore. And again, people are gonna say, oh, you're you're puritanical, you're just you're no. eliminating all the pleasure from the meat. But I'm my goal in the space is to try and get the most optimal nutritious food without any of the toxins. And that's the whole reason I don't eat plants. So when I cook the meat, I'm either going to do a sous vide in a non-plastic bag, like one of these stasher bags that doesn't have polyethylene, although those may have issues as well, or I'm going to slow cook it in water, or I'm just going to sear it on the pan for a moment, or maybe I'm going to try your method and do the Lugol's or just sterilize the outside of the meat. I definitely do eat meat raw, Mm -hmm. fairly commonly, just completely raw. I was over at Mike Mutzel's house last night, having dinner with he and Ben Lynch. And we just, we just all ate raw steak and it was fantastic. It was so funny because Ben Lynch, people may know him from the book Dirty Jeans. And, yeah, he's been on. Yeah. MTHFR. And he had this raw meat. He hadn't had it before. And I posted it on my Instagram. He was like, oh
1: man, I feel high. I thought it was yeah. so cool. You know, Two ounces of raw meat from like a good grass-fed animal. You feel, you get energy and you're full. I used to slice it real thin on salads, like carpaccio style. And yeah, I haven't done it in a while just for convenience and all, but uh, now that I have my own sheep, it wouldn't be that hard to just have sheep on the cob. I could just walk out there, take a bite, and let it free again.
2: <laughs> I think it's great. and So I think people should definitely be thinking about this, and you know, I'm going to piss on a lot of campfires right now when I just say that smoking your meat, closing the barbecue, grilling, this is not the way to cook your meat. All
1: right. I'm, I'm going to double down on that, uh, and I don't know that I've confessed this in public. I tossed my grill more than 10 years ago for that reason. I just did a video on how to minimize toxins from grilling. Like, if you're going to grill, here's how to do it, and news flash, you take a big piece of metal, like a metal griddle, and you're gonna deal with the iron on the griddle, but at least it's protecting your food from most of the crap that comes off the fire and sticks to the fat. And and so, when I want a nice smoky flavor, it's shocking what you can do. You take salt, you know, Himalayan salt or something that has been smoked, because when you smoke salt, the smoke that goes into that isn't the stuff that sticks to fat. And I've I've went really deep on all the academic research on this. So smoked salt that's made properly is okay, but liquid smoke is usually not okay because they put fat in the liquid smoke. Like it, it just comes down to chemistry. So I can get a smoky flavor. I can do it in the oven. And and it's healthier, or I can put it in the sous-vide. And it it works. And the outcome in health is so important uh that and when I see smoked meat, I'm like, I don't want to eat it because I can
2: tell my inflammation the next day. Do you feel it in one dose? I feel it. So <laughs> I I hadn't talked about this with people, uh, but I mean, I'll just, I'll share it with the community now. So I've been doing exclusively raw for the last three weeks as an experiment. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, you'll appreciate this. We're both sort of astronauts in the space. I don't know that I'll do exclusively raw long-term, but I'm going to remeasure my oxidative stress markers. I'm going to measure F2 isoprostane. I'm going to measure malandialdehyde. Can't wait. 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine. I really like eating all of my meat raw right now, Dave. And as a doctor, it's like, it's too hot for television. I can't tell people I'm doing that. You feel really good. There's no doubt. You feel really good. Yeah. Uh, You feel really good. Yeah.
1: What's your take? When I did this, uh, this Jesus, going way back, I would eat only raw butter. Uh, Are you doing any butter or are you just doing meat?
2: I don't do dairy. I'm happy to talk about what I eat. I am writing a book, which is called The Carnivore Code. And it's going to be super awesome. I just wrote the chapter on lactins. And in that chapter, mm-hmm. I talked about A1 versus A2 dairy. Yeah. And I don't, I'm completely convinced or at least very, you know, of the opinion that A1 is not a good thing for humans. I've just cut dairy out of my, my, my diet completely. And when I recommend if people are going to try, they do at least 30 days with no dairy at all. You know, butter actually has a decent amount of AGEs, so advanced glycation end products in it as well, so I don't do any of those things. Doesn't that depend on how it's processed and what yes. it ate? Yeah. yes.
1: And, and so there's, uh, I mean, I've looked really deeply into the whole butter thing, and, and I tell people, ghee, milk fat, has a lot of stuff that's beneficial for you in it, and it's the same, it's essentially animal fat, it, it, the way it, it's composed. Um, but it, there is some AGE in butter, however, there's much less than you're gonna get from most of the cooked food you eat.
2: Yes, or or bacon, you know, one of the things that I say, don't overeat that, you know, people think carnivore, this is great, I can just eat bacon and eggs and steak for the rest of my life, and I'm thinking that's not the way to do it if you're trying to leverage health. Bacon, because it's cooked and it's fat, has a lot of these AGEs. You
1: know, the bacon is, is relatively easy to fix, right? Number one, if you can get a pastured pig, that's great, and I know I have 10 of them in my farm, so I'm a little spoiled because I get to cure my own bacon. Okay. But then most people, if you can hear your bacon cooking, you're doing it wrong. Okay, that That's the most important thing. And then adding vanishingly small amounts of lipid antioxidants when you're cooking. Things like, oh, I don't know, vitamin E? Just a very small amount of vitamin E. Or you want to go out there in the anti-aging land, you could add butylated hydroxy toluene or BHT which was an anti-aging substance, but now it's a demonized uh, uh, synthetic antioxidant food preservative, Uh, I think that preventing the damage in your fat's good. And now I'm gonna really piss you off. Are you ready? Me? Rosemary. (laughs) Rosemary extract is a great lipid antioxidant. I know it comes from plants, it's like it's a bad thing. I'm just kidding. Uh, But rosemary is documented, so is oregano, in studies to inhibit lipid uh, lipid peroxidation. So if you slow cook your bacon, uh, so that the fat is undamaged, there was no smoke, you didn't have to worry about burning yourself, your outcomes will be very different, but your bacon won't be crispy, right? Like, like you have to know this. Uh, not you, but like, just everyone who's going to eat has to know this. Otherwise, screw the bacon, it's bad for you, but it, it's it's a religious experience when it's done right.
2: And that's amazing, and I think mm-hmm. that's what this podcast is about, and why it's cool to be spreading the message. And People don't have to be... We're not telling people to remove all pleasure from their life, but I think what's cool is to be able to deliver to deliver knowledge that creates yeah. power for people leveraging this for better health outcomes and say, if I'm gonna do it, I should do it this way, or you know, if I'm gonna eat meat, I should eat it this way versus that way, because these things are important to know. And if people want yeah. a goal of optimal health and longevity and performance, then this is the way to do it, to be informed and to be intentional about how you're cooking and eating food. Yeah, we're not saying you're gonna
1: die if you uh, cook your bacon hot and uh, smoke something for a long period of time. Uh, you just might live less, which is a very different animal. You, you know, your quality of life may go down, or the length yeah. of your life may eventually go down, but you might have a lot of pleasure right now, which is you're not the end of the world.
2: Pleasure now, pleasure long-term, it's a balance. It's all about quality of life. People need to make their decision. One thing that I've
1: noticed because I'm I'm definitely a connoisseur of uh, grass-fed meat and have been for many years. I've sampled it from around, uh, you know, around the world, and now I, I have to look at the quality of the grass that my animals eat because I get to eat the animals. But when you get a properly fed animal and you don't burn it and you eat it, there's a food high. And the biggest food high that I know how to get comes from pork belly from a properly raised pig. Pigs have the same detox organs as humans. They put almost everything through the ineffective kidneys instead of through the liver, which is why pigs accumulate toxins the way humans do. We both suck at detoxing. And it's one reason you probably don't want to eat pig kidneys and liver, uh, amongst many other reasons, uh, including viruses and stuff. But when you get that pork belly and you cook it just right and you eat just a normal amount of it, for several hours afterwards, instead of like the sugary buzz or the caffeine buzz, there's this this feeling of just like I could do anything I want to do right now. Uh what is your go-to meat that produces that like superhuman feeling?
2: It is a combination and I had this last night with Mike and Ben. It's a combination of a good quality fillet that's raw yeah. and animal fat. Have you had raw suet? People are thinking I'm a nutcase now, but have you had raw animal fat? Yeah. Like the suet or the trimmings from a steak. I was slicing this up and giving it to people last night. I think it's amazing. You can even cook it a little bit on the grill, mm-hmm. get it soft or on the, you know, like on a cast iron skillet, not the grill. You can cook it a little bit on a cast iron skillet and just get it a little soft. And that is the go to. And I think it's the fat. It's not the protein necessarily, yeah, it's, it's the fat. fat and Marrow, the fat. too.
1: Right, you crack yeah, open the yes. bone, you get the marrow Raw, that's not, marrow. not over, not overcooked, and there's something that happens. Your whole body is just singing, like your cells are like,
2: "Yeah." I'm sure it's ketones and it's fat soluble nutrients, and there yeah. are nutrients in the muscle meat. But one of the things that I talk about in the context of a carnivore diet is not having people overeat protein.
1: It, it's a massive problem, right? Tell tell people why uh, it, it's like it. In fact, I just wrote a kind of a a quasi-negative piece. I'm not against the carnivore diet. In, in fact, it, it just saved a friend's life. Um, but it was like, hey, if you're eating a lot of muscle meat, your amino acid ratios, blah, 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 yeah. but I think there's more to it. Tell tell everyone listening why high protein on a carnivore diet could be a problem and how the heck you avoid that.
2: So there are two issues, and I know that you've you've mentioned both of these, and I really appreciated you wow. highlighting these. The first is the methionine-glycine ratio, yes. which you've talked about on your posts, right? And the idea here is that muscle meat relative to the amount of glycine in muscle meat, the amount of methionine is fairly high. And if you actually look at the percentage of methionine and the percentage of glycine, what I've seen is that glycine is about two and methionine is about seven, but it's the relative ratios of those. Because if you look at collagen or collagenous connective tissues of an animal, the amount of methionine is about 0.9 and the amount of glycine is about 23 or 27. So you can see that We don't really know in human biology what the optimal methionine-glycine ratio is, but I suspect it's different than 2 to 7. You need less methionine and more glycine than 2 to 7 as occurs in muscle meat. And there's a whole series of experiments that were done in the 1950s and 1960s on rats that everyone cites saying excess methionine is bad for you. And really, when they did the follow-up experiments, what they found was that it was the absence of glycine or the imbalance of glycine that was the really detrimental thing. And when they added glycine back to those rodent experiments, they saw prolongation of life and longevity. So <laughs> what we know in human biochemistry is that much like a rodent, if we overconsume consume methionine without balancing it with glycine, we may be setting ourselves up for biochemical stress, biochemical disaster.
1: It- it It's funny, because uh, uh, if, if you look at sort of the history of, of collagen as a supplement, uh, Bulletproof put collagen on the market as something worthy of consideration. Uh, and, and now it's become a big category in of itself. We have the top-selling collagen protein bar, it's all grass-fed and all that kind of stuff because of what you just said. Like that that science is real. Uh, and I'll tell you, if I'm going to eat more than two or four ounces of meat in a meal, because I do practice moderate methionine restriction, um, the traditional way of doing it would be to have some soup made of bones. And since bone broth is kind of a pain in the ass to make, I just take a scoop of my collagen and I put it in water and I chug it before I have foods that are higher in methionine to keep my ratio where I want it to be. I love um, it. Uh, so so you're you're down with that.
2: On on Instagram and social media, I made a thing out of like putting collagen directly on, on the steak. And some people were like, Oh, good, we love
1: though. I mean our collagen is pretty neutral. It's about as neutral <laughs> as any protein powder you'll get, and much not like pea protein or something gross. But Uh-oh, gross. Uh, but like seriously, you ruin a steak by putting collagen on there?
2: I don't think it's that bad, Dave. You gotta try it. Like you know, my kids just, will I can pour our,
1: our unflavored collagen powder. I'll pour it in my hand and they just like lick their fingers and eat it. They love the yeah, taste. It's okay? good. Wow. And
2: so yeah. But and the other thing is for people to think about the fact, this gets to the idea of a nose-to-tail carnivore diet, that if you or I if you and I are in a tribe and we're out hunting and we kill a deer respectfully and we're thankful for the, the animal or we kill a bison, we are going to take that animal back to the tribe and we are gonna eat every single piece of that animal. We're gonna eat the Mm -hmm. tendon that connects the kneecap to the, you know, I don't even know if a bison has a kneecap. Uh, We're (laughs) we're gonna eat all the tendons. We're gonna eat all the pieces of the animal that we never know about as a human and we're gonna, as as like westernized humans, we only see the muscle meat. We don't see the fat around the kidneys. We don't see all the tendinous tissue that animals have. And that's where the collagen is in the animal and that's what we're missing as well as humans who are just focused on tenderloin steaks and ribeyes, which are delicious, but we're not eating the whole animal. If you look at the whole animal, there's all this connective tissue. So I encourage people to either do a collagen supplement, a glycine supplement, or just eat collagenous tissue from the animal, get tendon and make tendon, or get more tendinous tissue from the animal. That's one of the reasons I like the the fat from the animal, because it'll often have tendinous tissue in it, And it offends the delicate sensibilities of some people. We're not used to it as Westerners. It's quite common in other cultures. Oh yeah. But I I try to eat tendinous tissue as a source of that glycine, thinking, okay, I'm just trying to eat the whole animal. Mm -hmm. The other thing about eating tons of ribeyes, which is certainly one of the flavors of a carnivore diet, is that, you know what I've seen in myself and others who I work with uh, as a physician, is that it pushes your fasting glucose up. It just does. And this really worries
1: Because of the muscle protein.
2: Because, of the, yeah, because I think we're exceeding our need for protein. Yeah. As you know, humans don't run on protein. We either run on fat or carbohydrates. It's we an are emergency
1: vegan. fuel source, and it'll trash your biology to be protein-driven. The high-protein diets th- are terrible.
2: I think I agree with you Including completely. Including high plant protein, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to put your body through the stress of that. Now, I think that there is a low end for protein, and if we get too little— mm-hmm. We're gonna get sarcopenia, we're gonna get bone density problems, we're gonna lose muscle mass. But there's a clear sweet spot for humans for protein. And my impression of that is something like 0.7 to 1.1 grams per pound of lean body weight. That's a little more than a lot of people would recommend. I mean, maybe you could go to 0.6, maybe 0.6 to one.
1: Yeah, 0.6 is my number, yeah. The 0.6
2: yeah. per pound of lean body mm-hmm. weight, not kilograms per pound. And so I think that that's what you want to find. And it's a real easy metric to follow. You can look at your fasting glucose. If people have a CGM or a continuous glucose monitor, you can look at those, the amplitude of the postprandial glucose excursions, which on a carnivore diet will be very low because the the glucose throughout the day is very mellow. But people can look at their fasting glucose. They can look at their A1C. And if they're eating too much protein, you'll see those bump up a little bit. They edge into the 90s. The fasting glucose goes into the 90s and the, and the a1c goes above 5.4 and i think no that i don't like that if you look at the studies that have been done it's very clear when we look at fasting glucose and a1c and mortality large studies in korea the sweet spot is right around 75 for fasting glucose and if we're doing things that elevate our fasting glucose above that i have real concerns about that so
1: no i've i just finished the manuscript for superhuman my how many to live to at least 180 and you can too kind of book And I talk uh, quite a bit about uh, those issues, both with methionine, uh, but also with this idea of how much protein do you need. And one thing that comes out of the data that surprised me is that low insulin is a much, much stronger predictor of all-cause mortality than high insulin. And when you go on a high-fat, keto, unending, non-cyclical diet, or presumably, and this is part of my question, um a carnivore diet are you creating a low chronic insulin state
2: the insulin is usually pretty low so have you looked at the studies
1: on low insulin and all the bad things it does when it's too low
2: well i think what's interesting is that when we're looking at insulin it's just this one time point right we'll get one fasting yeah. insulin one of the things that i wish we could develop maybe you and i can develop this is a is a continuous insulin monitor right i think oh, it, that what's ha- coming
1: It'll be continuous insulin, glucose, ketones, and probably organic acids for all we know, but good stuff will come. Like like it has to. Yeah. If your aura ring can do what it can do now in just a ring, not like a chest strap from 10 years ago, I'm pretty sure we're going to get there on the little stick on monitors.
2: And so what you'll see is that when people eat, even if they're eating fat and meat, you're going to get insulin rise. It has to rise. You're going to get glucagon rise with it. So the ratio won't change a whole lot. But People on carnivore diets are not gonna have insulin that's chronically super low. You're gonna get rising insulin, we know that, because if you didn't have any insulin ever on a carnivore diet, you wouldn't have any anabolic stimulus. You would lose your muscles, you would lose your bone density. I think that humans want to activate mTOR every once in a while. We need some anabolic signals. We need to activate mTOR, but we wanna balance that with AMP kinase and turning these things off. And so, when we are eating meat, when we are eating throughout the day, preferably in a time-restricted eating window, but we can talk about that, we're going to get insulin rising. So it's not chronically low insulin, it's just the fasting insulin is very low on a carnivore diet. Now I think that the super low insulin all the time is a very different thing, and that's why I think postprandial insulin might be the, the marker to look at. And um, I, would, I think I might start measuring that in some of my patients. My friend here in Seattle just got a microplate reader, so I <laughs> hang out with some pretty amazing people here. So we got you know a, a kit of four hundred elizas and, and we're gonna do insulin we're gonna do all these measures on ourselves and kind of create a continuous insulin monitor throughout the day Wow all right
1: that's fascinating now let's get back into this antiplan thing uh, as which is kind of like the 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 whether you're, you're for or against vaccines or different female reproductive things and all that sort of stuff, it, it's actually not as black and white as for plants or against plants or for meat is against meat. Um, it, it's way more nuanced. But I'm just saying that to be inflammatory. So, and in your anti-vegetable stance, Paul, uh, as a as a clearly bad human being, <laughs> um, what uh what are the major classes of plant-based compounds you're most concerned about? And I. I have my Bulletproof Diet five, but I want, I, I want I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna quiz you on yours, and we're gonna correlate it to those, and you're gonna teach me about the ones I missed. So,
2: well, give me your yeah. deep list. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, it depends how granular you get with the plant defense chemicals, but I would classify the first large category as phytoalexins. And phytoalexins is quite a broad category, that just means plant defense chemicals. These are chemicals that plants make in response to injury, that plants make to discourage insects, herbivores, omnivores from eating them. Within the category of phytoalexins, there are many different types of plant toxins, which we can go into. But as a broad category, there are plant sort of phytoalexins. There are also oxalates and lectins. And I'm sort of, you know, it depends how we sort of classify all this. I don't know that oxalates are necessarily a phytoalexin because plants often use oxalates to move ions and minerals around the plant. And lectins are probably part of plants' normal germination process, but can really muck up human biology as well. So I think of it in terms of those big three. Perhaps phytic acid would be uh, a fourth one, but you might include phytic acid in one of those categories as well. So those would be my four And in the category of phytoalexins, we can break that down even further. I suspect a lot of yours might fall under the category of phytoalexins if we're thinking about some of the other molecules in there. Sure,
1: Uh, so lectins we largely agree on. Uh, Dr. Gundry's been on the show, and I wrote a chapter in The Bulletproof Diet on on lectins. Uh, However, as I think you probably learned in medical school, we make a 1,000 lectins in our own bodies every day, A 1,000 Absolutely. It's a broad class of compounds. So to say all lectins, are bad would be to say you must die, um, yeah, and also there right. are lectins in the meat you eat. They're just not lectins yes, they mess with you, right?
2: Exactly because they're more compatible with your biology. One of the things that I have developed as a meme, as a teaching point for people, is this idea that plants are from a different operating system than humans. Yeah, yeah. and many of the many of the molecules that plants use don't play well with our biology. It's like most mac- of them do Exactly, most of them don't. Oxalates and lectins are a great example. You're absolutely right. We have carbohydrate-binding proteins in humans. Meat has carbohydrate-binding proteins. But the chances of a carbohydrate-binding protein from a plant interfering with your biology are much, much greater than a compatible molecule from a cow or a deer interfering with your biology. It basically is you. It's built just like you. Its biochemistry is 99.99% the same. So you're right. Lectin compatibility is really the issue. And Dr. Gundry's done a great job of highlighting that.
1: And so lectins are out there and I just I don't think all plant lectins are necessarily bad for you it depends on who you are and there are people who tolerate nightshades I think nightshades are generally bad for everyone um but some people handle them better and some people handle them much more much poor much more, much more poor poorer poor, poorlier whatever than other people Uh so lectins are there um the oxalic acid thing Man, when I went on Joe Rogan, uh, the first time, I was like, hey, I'm, you know, here's Bulletproof Coffee. And Joe's like, yes, oh my God, I can't believe how I feel. And the second time, I'm like, you know, I wanna give something back to this community. I'm gonna like do the deep research on kale. And I prepared this post, because at the time, that was like the big thing was kale smoothies. And I'd tried kale smoothies. I'd been that raw vegan eating a bucket of kale every day and all that. And it causes inflammation, at least for me. So I went through, I'm, I'm like, okay, here's how you cook kale, here's how you, Bind the oxalic acid. Here's how you pour the water off. Here's the species of kale with lower oxalic acid. By the way, the lacy kale is bad and the dino kale is good. Well, good, yep. good being less bad. Uh, and, and all that stuff. And I wrote this big post and went on and it still pissed people off. <laughs> and I'm like, come on guys, I'm trying to help you. Like if you're gonna do it, do it this way or maybe just, just skip it already. So that that's kind of my oxalic acid story. But the category of toxins from plants uh, that you didn't mention that I think is noteworthy um, is field toxins and storage toxins. Mycotoxins, absolutely. Hold hold on. Did you just say mycotoxins are a real thing? Mycotoxins
2: are a very real thing, my friend. Oh, my goodness. You,
1: uh, didn't you hear Rhonda Patrick when she went on Joe Rogan? Uh, when, right after he decided, uh, when his friends decided to knock off Bulletproof, uh, he decided that I was a bad man. Uh, And he had uh, Rhonda Patrick come on and say mycotoxins didn't matter in human biology. Are you disagreeing with the great Rhonda Patrick who is too busy to come on Bulletproof Radio?
2: Oh, I think I would disagree with Rhonda Patrick about many things. Oh no! Yes. Oh hey, you my know what? goodness. Hey, let me send you some literature about mold toxins. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you mean the thousand studies I have on the Bulletproof website? <laughs> You've already
2: pulled <laughs> out. Yeah, you should make a movie on it. Oh wait, you did. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah. No, no, mold toxins are a big thing. I recently had Anthony J on my podcast, which is Fundamental Health. Oh yeah, yeah. We talk. How many about- episodes do
1: you have by the way on Fundamental Health?
2: I have nine or 10 now. Okay, oh, so you new- just
1: got started. I haven't I haven't checked it out. I'll check it out. Fundamental yeah, Health out. is the name?
2: Fundamental Health okay. with Paul Saladino MD. Yeah. And uh, I had Anthony Jay on. He is a PhD. He works at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And he's written a great book on estrogens. And we were talking about mycoestrogens. Yes. Uh, Zirinol, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, we tell people about-, about Zirinol. You know what it is? Yeah, I think you and Anthony may know more than okay. I about that, but I know that when grains get moldy, they get these—I don't know if it's zeaxanthin or something oh, like. that. No, know,
1: it's a, that's a zeaxanthin. Yes, that's good for you, um, at least if you if if you believe as I do that some of those things are good for your eyes, uh, even though they come from plants. We're um, right. talking about zearalanone, the mycotoxin. Yes. That's, yes. So it's a thousand times more estrogenic than your own estrogen. But xeranol, and this is why I thought you know about ziranol. xeranol is purified zearalanone that's sold to ranchers, and you put a little wax pellet of xeranol into a cow's ear, and the feed efficiency of the cow goes up by 30%. Now, that means the cow gets fat on 30% less calories. And if you're one of those old school 1970s calories in, calories out guys, you tell me how that's possible. It's not about calories in, calories out. It's about hormone manipulation in that case. But if you're on a carnivore diet and you're not eating grass-fed meat, you're getting a dose of... Synthetic estrogens purified from mycotoxins, and what they do is they cause fatty streaking in the muscles, you want that nice marbled cut? I don't want marbled tissue in my body, thank you very much, and I don't eat marbled tissue, right? That's why, like, for the people who are into the carnivore diet, or just in the Bulletproof diet, grass-fed or be vegetarian. Well, in your case, I don't know what you do if you're not grass-fed, but. Uh, <laughs> Unwild. <laughs> okay, so, so you're, you're down with the mycotoxins having some yeah, effect yeah. on human and- biology.
2: And this is the other thing I was talking about on that podcast with Anthony about the fact that when cows are fed moldy grains or they're fed corn, that corn is also sprayed with uh, atrazine, which has an estrogenic effect. And I do have a lot of concerns that those estrogenic molecules accumulate in the fat and in the muscle of these non-grass fed animals. And I've often thought, if you look at a healthy human, if you look at a human athlete, you're not gonna have intramuscular fat deposits. I love that you brought this up, Dave, And yet you go to the butcher and you're like, I want that marbled meat, you know? That is a cow with metabolic syndrome.
1: You're eating it. It's a diabetic cow.
2: That is a diabetic cow. That is a cow with inflammation. And the way that healthy muscle is supposed to look is not, you're not supposed to have fat in your muscle. (laughs) And it it tastes better because of the fat, but you know what, you're supposed to have fat stores around the muscle or fat on the tendinous streaks or fat in the ribeye in that place, but intramuscular fat. That's suggesting a sick cow. And whether they're giving them the mycoestrogens in the ear, like you're suggesting, or whether they are giving atrazine on the corn, this is going to bioaccumulate in your meat. So it's a big problem, these estrogens and these mycotoxins. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, So that's another.
2: uh, You can eliminate all the mycotoxins if you don't have any plants, right? Well, except no.
1: Well, on the food. That's the problem. a lot of us know the amazing myth of—I uh, uh, don't mean myth in a bad way, but just just the the mythology of forty-eight day dry aged beef. Oh that yes, so right. That's better. not a good idea. So, and I—I I, took me a while to figure this out. I'm dialing. Why do I feel inflamed? Why do? Why is my brain foggy after I ate that amazing, you know, eighty-dollar steak? And what happens when you hang meat for a while in the right environment is you're you're fermenting it, and you're allowing fungus to grow, and then they cut off all the black stuff from the outside of it, but the hyphae, the fungal roots, have gone into the meat, and they've tenderized it. News newsflash, you're eating meat contaminated with a fungus that feeds on meat, and you are made of meat. That seems like a bad idea to me.
2: I agree with you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think that I've always thought that about dry aged meat. It's so funny that as Westernized humans, we're just in search of like the most unhealthy meat we can get. We're in search of marbled, grain fed, fatty meat that's (laughs) been dry aged and then overcooked and burned in a steakhouse. No wonder people think meat isn't good for them because you're not eating fresh meat that you just, you know, that you just killed with your tribe. That's not how it's supposed to taste. That's not the meat you want. And it's funny too, it doesn't taste right.
1: Like if I, if I was to go out, and it's been many years since I did this, I was to go out and, and eat a, a piece of uh, non-grass fed steak, I used to say, all right, just eat this stuff with no fat. If you are gonna, if you can't get uh, organic or, or grass fed, eat the filet because has almost no fat in it and you'll avoid the fat soluble toxins. But I still feel crappy. And I, I think the reason, at least in the US, is this isn't a plant-based issue, although plant-based diets cause this issue, um, it's glyphosate. Yeah, and glyphosate. Stephanie Siniff came on and uh, on the show a while back and talked about this in detail. But the gly in glyphosate is glycine, that amino acid you just talked about. So, do animals, including us, will we substitute a glyphosate molecule for a glycine molecule? Yeah. If you get your Probably. collagen from, and there's people selling it as a health product, they're, they're selling uh, collagen from chickens not organic chickens and it's going to be full of glyphosate residues and if you test it you know see what you find so this is the other one of the toxins that's out there both in meat that could be in your carnivore or your paleo or your bulletproof diet if you don't pick the right animal but i I guess that's not on your list of five or my list of five because it's not plant-based it's just caused by this this assumption that plant-based agriculture is okay the way they do it
2: oh it's so bad it's a water-soluble toxin it's in everything now and we can't avoid it and Yeah, I mean, even you and I, unfortunately, who really try and filter our water and eat good meat, and for those who are eating plants, even eating organic plants, you're gonna have glyphosate residues in your body. I think this is an incredible disservice done to the human race by Monsanto Bayer.
1: Well, they're getting the pants suit off them right now and losing in courts, and the whole value of Bayer is dropping because they bought Monsanto. And, you know, I believe in business karma. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so let's, Amen, brother. <laughs> let's Amen. see what
1: happens there. Uh, okay, Other the other uh, plant-based, uh, or at least plant compounds that are uh, particularly of concern to me, but also in, in animals, it's toxic metals. And there's something called thallium that uh, a lot of people don't know about. Are you read up on thallium? You want me to talk about why I'm concerned about it in plants, or do you have a story about it?
2: I don't have a specific story. Let's hear what you uh, know about it. I just know that it's a heavy metal that we, don't want to accumulate. I remember hearing something about kale accumulating, maybe it was thallium, yeah. But here's why
1: thallium's an issue. Thallium's known as the poisoner's poison because in Russia they would use it. It was commonly used because it disrupts potassium in the body and it's flavorless and colorless. You put it in there and it inhibits mitochondrial function, causes all sorts of havoc, and you just don't know why the person starts to die. So it's not that common. The problem is in the US we banned lead from gasoline because lead is another really serious thing that you get in animals or plants raised near freeways and things like that. Uh, So we took lead out of our gasoline. Guess what they replaced the lead with? Thallium. Guess what plant in the entire plant kingdom will attract and concentrate thallium more than any other? It's kale. Kale. And all the cruciferous (laughs) vegetables do that. You better be eating some organic stuff but even organic kale when they test it is exceptionally high in thallium. So if you're one of those people who, with the best possible intention, is eating two kale salads a day and you have higher than normal levels of thallium, which means lower levels of mitochondrial function and kidney stones and sore joints all the time, like maybe you should get some lettuce instead of kale and you just might like your life better.
2: Or you can just eat you can just eat animals' nose to tail. Uh, all right. Have you ever had a pig
1: nose? Uh no. All right. So we butchered our two pigs last year, and if you go to my Instagram page, Dave.Asprey, there's a picture of the face. We took half the the skull and and I cooked it, I sous vide it, and then uh, finished it in the oven. And it was actually the best pork I've ever had. Like crispy skin, amazing. But that little last inch of snout, Man, Hard. I couldn't get anyone at the table to really want to eat the nostrils. I mean, it is—it it was not nice. So the next one's going into uh, head cheese, <laughs> which
2: is going to be okay. I, <laughs> I bet it's high in collagen, though. I mean, I'm sure it's good for you.
1: The snout? Oh, it's—it's it's certainly high in collagen. It was also highly marbled. It was—it was pretty weird. But there's just something on the texture that was just not right. I don't know. <laughs> um, and also, I, I mean, you, you have to really be comfortable with the fact you know, that this, this pig had a good life. I fed that pig, and, and now it's feeding me, right. and it's—it's and it's a. Synergy there, but for people who are saying there's animal cruelty involved They have never seen what happens when you disrupt hundreds of acres or in this case hundreds of square miles of Prairie all the just death and destruction of animals for monoculture uh, And you have tractors going through to make these low-density Not very healthy foods that then get tracked around the death per calorie on a carnivore diet from grass-fed is way way less than on any vegan diet you can do, unless you're growing the vegetables yourself in your garden. Uh, and that is, I mean, I do actually have a, about a half acre of garden behind me where I grow all my own vegetables. Uh, and I can tell you not a lot dies in that garden. <laughs> but most of the time, by the time your food is transported, uh, everybody lost. So i don't right, get off my rant and there.
2: I agree with you completely, the buy kills, with plant agriculture is a big deal. And people, we don't have to go down the environmental thing. We could probably do a whole other podcast yeah, on could. the environmental stuff. I did a podcast on my podcast with Peter Ballersted, who is very interested in the environmental stuff. It'll be out in a couple of weeks. Probably by the time this comes out, it'll be out. But Peter has gone to great lengths to share this message. And he's educated me a lot about the fact that the greenhouse gas emissions from cows are not the same as new emissions from fracking or technology or other types of carbon, so I would encourage people, if they worry about greenhouse gas emissions from cows, to seek the facts and don't watch the vegan propaganda because they're very low, Yes, they're very low, they're minuscule compared to the new carbon that is being created by technology, by burning fossil fuels, et cetera. We all contribute to this, I'm guilty as well, I drive a car, I wish I had an electric car, I don't yet, but even, you know, fossil fuels are everywhere. But the fact that people vilify ruminant animals, which are actually if they are grass-fed and properly raised, contributing to an increased amount of carbon-carrying capacity of the soil and decreasing overall greenhouse gases, the fact that people vilify those animals is just an, un- an injustice. It, it, those are yeah. that's the way that's one of the ways we could really, really change the amount of greenhouse gas in the world. More ruminant animals.
1: It's it's anti-nature, it's anti-human, and it's anti-animal. Um, you know, those, those animals exist in our ecosystem for a reason, and they exist on my farm for a reason, and part of it is. Soil integrity, the pigs prepare the soil, the sheep shit on the soil, which inoculates it with the bacteria that it needs and then amazing stuff happens. And if you don't have that that cycle, it doesn't work. And this is also one of the reasons too, um, some of the proceeds from Superhuman, uh, my anti-aging book, are funding a carbon capture X prize. <laughs> so I donated cool. them uh, because we've got to solve the problem and the single biggest thing we have to do is fix our soil, and you gotta have grass-fed animals to do that, and that will capture carbon. And also, we're yeah. gonna run out of soil to grow those those dumb vegan burger things. Uh, we're gonna run out in about 60 years if we don't do this. So it seems important to me. But yeah, we could do a whole episode on this.
2: Did you see the literature about how much glyphosate was in uh, the, I, I think it was the Beyond Burger? Oh, it God. Was so, it was so high. Those are ultra so processed
1: high. food. I'm I'm sorry. I mean oh, I, yeah. I I like the idea of that, but just because it tastes like a burger, it, it you know, I could probably make cyanide taste like a burger. It doesn't mean you should eat it, right? It it no. actually has to functionally act like a burger in your gut and then in your cells for it to count. And so yeah. I you know, I want that to work, but it seems like a sad excuse to sell non organic big food to me. Um all right let's switch back to one of the big criticisms of meat and i've i've debunked this although i don't really like the word debunking because that implies the person who was trying to bunk we'll say i have corrected the mistake is is a more accurate way of saying it uh, around TMAO Ooh. what is TMAO and what's the issue here
2: TMAO is trimethylamine oxide dave i just recorded a podcast yesterday with tommy wood and we went we went into this in detail it is such an interesting story there was a study that was just, it was either published or I saw it on Twitter yesterday. I'll tell people the story of TMAO, and then I'll tell people why it is nothing to worry about. Yay. TMAO is produced in the liver when TMA is converted to TMAO by an enzyme called FMO3. Now, another way that you can get TMAO is when you eat compounds with either preformed TMAO, which include fish, a lot, of which it. has... Four 40 times more TMAO than uh, the amount of TMAO that you will get from eating meat, which has choline and carnitine. So this to me is such myopia on the part of researchers and anyone vilifying TMAO. They they say it causes cancer, basically. They say it causes cancer. And the research with TMAO is not mechanistic, okay? The research with TMAO is not mechanistic, it's epidemiologic, and people need to know that many of the things that we have that are, Told to us about the negative qualities of meat are observational epidemiology. They're not actually experimental.
1: They're, they're, they don't know why it's crappy science. Because you and I just—we just mentioned eight different things you can do wrong when you're eating your meat, and they're like, oh, "I don't know." These people eat sausage made from crap animals, uh, and then they, the bad things happen. Therefore, all meat is bad, and it's
2: just—that's stupid, right? It's—it's it's just stupid. And so, what we have seen, what researchers have seen, and where the whole where the whole sordid fairy tale, where the whole unfortunate misconception about TMAO comes from is that people who have higher levels of TMAO in their blood are sometimes associated with worse outcomes. And the reason, then they, then, <laughs> yes, you know, mortality or cardiovascular yeah. or diabetic outcomes. And so then they extrapolate and they say, don't eat choline and don't eat carnitine and don't eat meat, which is crazy because yeah. those things are super valuable for humans in so many ways.
1: Choline you must have for your nervous system to work.
2: And for your liver to make phosphatidylcholine, mm-hmm. a great way to give yourself non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is to become choline deficient. Now, the incredible logical flaw here, and I can't believe people make it so often, is they say, oh, it's associated, therefore it's causing it. The study that came out yesterday clearly showed, and I can find you the reference, or we can put it in the show notes for people, it showed that it's probably a reverse causality. and. What I hinted to at the beginning about the fact that the enzyme that makes TMAO in the liver is controlled by insulin, what we are seeing here is a effect of the fact that people who are insulin resistant may have more TMAO, Mm -hmm. that when there's more insulin, there's more activity of FMO3, those people make more TMAO, and it's not the TMAO that's causing harm, it's the insulin resistance this is the pattern we see over and over and over, is that things get called yeah. problematic, when in fact it's the underlying insulin resistance that we know is the problem. In fact. And if that's the case with TMAO. So it's reverse, it's reverse causality. In the study they did there, they were able to show that people with diabetes, coronary vascular disease, had higher levels of TMAO, and the whole association was a reverse causality, meaning the TMAO is higher because they have diabetes, and cardiovascular disease it's not causing the problem. Are you listening Stephen Gundry?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love Stephen. He's he's a great guy. And he's a great guy. Talk about an accomplished uh, an accomplished physician and uh, multi uh, changes the world in multi uh, multi levels at once. Uh, but yeah, there there are some things that I don't agree with Stephen on, uh, but directionally, I think he's 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 got some good stuff. All right, here's what's really mind-blowing. You go back to the cool fact of the day about oh, gee, your gut bacteria sort of change every drug study. <laughs> but we can identify which gut bacteria make TMAO. In fact, they make more TMAO than your liver enzymes do. Right. So, using my Viome test, uh, and I, disclosure, I'm an investor, an early advisor, and just a big fan of Viome. Uh, Viome.com slash Dave, I think will get you some sort of special, I don't even know what it is. But um, the Viome test showed me, oh, I don't have TMAO forming bacteria in my gut. You know why I would hypothesize I don't? Because I don't eat antibiotic fed animals. So if you eat animals full of antibiotics, they change your gut bacteria, you're probably more likely to have more TMAO formers. And guess what else Volume just announced last week? A study they published in a procedures journal whose name I forgot. And the study said with 90% accuracy, they can predict your glycemic response to 27,000 different foods only by knowing what bacteria is in your poop and what it's doing. So the connection between, oh, I'm at high risk for, uh, say, having diabetes, which is in part a function of your gut bacteria, and whether TMO does anything in the body or not is also a function of gut bacteria, you're thinking, oh, maybe this goes back to something else. But whether TMO itself causes anything, no one has a mechanism for it. Therefore, it's not good science.
2: It's right. horrible science. And it, I think it's been clearly shown now it's reverse causality. It's the insulin resistance. So if people want to be healthy, don't become
1: insulin resistant. Uh, there you go. And reverse it if you are. I right, we've got to talk a little bit more about the microbiome. So Let's I, do it. I monitor mine. I, I went from uh, 48 species up to 196 species by actually adding the stuff that feeds butyric uh, forming bacteria. I have a prebiotic uh, formula uh, that's based on two years of, of that sort of stuff called Interfuel that's coming out. And it is made, made from very specific plant compounds where you remove all the, the bad stuff. So I, I would say, you know, these studies saying oh, whole grains are good for you, whatever, because they have fiber. I'm like, look. If I was to take fiber and I was to cover it in lead and uh, your name, your, it's some ricin nerve gas, which is also a plant-based protein for it's oh, a
2: lectin. Right. Ricin is a lectin. It,
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Ricin is a plant-based protein, just like it's pea protein. Actually, it's bean protein. <laughs>
2: like, Castor beans.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So, like, oops. But anyway, we uh, we put those in in with fiber, and you go, oh, those fiber it's good for you, and and that's sort of my picture for this whole beans and and whole grains. You know, they're so good for you, but the studies around fiber. There's a lot of evidence that shows having the right fiber, feeding the right bacteria can have benefits. Now, so so I rather than asking you to refute all those studies, which I think might be a long discussion and difficult, what I want to ask you about is where do you get fiber in an animal-based diet?
2: Well, you know... I think you you know the answer to this question. You actually sort of can get fiber from collagen, you know, yep. from the connective tissue of an animal. And the whole butyrate question is very fascinating because people worry that on a carnivore diet, you're not going to make short chain fatty acids. And that's just not true for a variety of reasons. As Dave is hinting at, the, the collagen in an animal can actually be fermented into short-chain fatty acids. But also what has been shown in feeding experiments is that protein can also make short-chain fatty acids. They're different than butyrate. It's isobutyrate or acetate or propionate. But there's plenty of short-chain fatty acids. And the fact that on a ketogenic diet, like carnivore, like nosotel carnivore, you're going to have circulating beta-hydroxybutyrate means that the epithelial cells in the gut are going to have plenty of fuel. But yeah. There sort of is quote unquote, yeah. like a sneaky animal fiber on, uh, on a, on a carnivore
1: diet. That's what I wanted you to say was the words animal fiber. I was hoping you'd go there. <laughs> and that is a nickname for collagen. And in, uh, uh, in the Bulletproof diet, uh, I, I think I'm the guy who put the study on the map cause no one I knew had heard of it. I remember it, at a four m talking with, uh, uh, Dale Bredesen, uh, you know, the end of Alzheimer's author has been on the show, and uh, David Perlmutter, and saying, guys, no, I have the study. It's, uh, it says that you can turn collagen into butyric acid. There's just one little problem. The only study I could find was in leopards. Have you seen anything since the leopard study? I'm like, I know it's possible, but we have no evidence that the human gut has ever turned collagen. Into butyric acid. I just think it does because, well, you can survive on just meat the way you are, and you actually do well, and you make butyric acid. Therefore, something's happening. Is probably collagen. Do you have a better study? I don't. I just know the leopard study.
2: Ah, darn we it. We can find it. We'll look for it. We'll. Fu- okay. I think that we'll, we'll do the experiment. You know, maybe my buddy with the the micro array will find if, some way to actually. If you can
1: prove that collagen makes butyric acid in the gut, it would solve a lot of mysteries. And I, I am, I would bet that that's the case. It. It, it almost has to be, but all right. So the, there's your answer for the microbiome. Uh, what I haven't seen, and in fact, I bet you that Naveen uh, from uh, Viome would probably be more than happy you know, to run a, a small test of ten people or something who are going to be on you know high collagen animal-based diets just to see what their gut bacteria did over time. I don't know if he does that kind of stuff, but I, I could always ask him. We should do it. Uh, all right, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll connect you guys if you're if you're interested. Yeah, please. Okay. Yeah. All right, I've got one more question for you. I've publicly stated, hey, I'm going to live to at least 180. I think we can do it. Now, you've gotten medical training. Uh, you've done all sorts of cool stuff. You know, you're deep in the biochemistry like I am. How long do you think you can live?
2: I think I'd say probably something similar. Hey, you know what lengthens your telomeres? Uh, sex. Red, red, red meat. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually studies that show oh, really? this. really? I mean, if people go online and Google that right now, red meat, telomere lengthening, they'll find it in an instant. It's, it's, yeah, it's not a fringe study.
1: Wow, so who would have thought? Uh, Okay, I I gotta ask then, ferritin levels. Ferritin is uh, something for, if you're listening to this and you don't know what ferritin is, that's okay, you're just a normal person, uh, like most of us. Uh, Ferritin is uh, the amount of iron, it's an inflammatory compound from too much iron, and eating a lot of red meat can raise ferritin. What's your take on ferritin on the carnivore diet?
2: I think that it's very individual. I think that what we see with ferritin is complicated because it's an acute phase reactant. And when I'm looking at ferritin, I have a number of clients who are carnivores and keto now, and I've seen a lot of ferritins. I've checked mine multiple times. It was 87, and I talked to Joe Mercola. He was very concerned, and he said, what's your GGT? And oh, my GGT's 13, so I always correlate a ferritin with a GGT, I don't wanna see oxidative stress And so what I use, when people have a ferritin above 100, I'll use other inflammatory and oxidative stress markers to kind of triangulate and say, do I really think this is causing oxidative stress in people? Certainly there are people with polymorphisms like hemochromatosis who will overaccumulate ferritin to very dangerous levels. And those people will need to get phlebotomy no matter what they eat, whether they're eating lots of red meat or not. But for the general public, I'm not really concerned about over-accumulating iron. I think the body is pretty good at doing this. If I saw someone and they had an elevated ferritin, I would want to know why, and I would want to triangulate with other markers of oxidative stress, like you're suggesting, kind of try and answer the question, is there oxidative stress? I would want to do the markers that I kind okay. of suggested earlier, F2-isoprostane, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, get a sense of where that's going. But as we suggested earlier, Maybe the ideal animal-based diet is not excessive amounts of red meat. Maybe it's just yeah. that kind of Goldilocks amount of really good red meat with organ meats and good fat, and you know that nose-to-tail kind of thing, well cooked in a way that doesn't have lots of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. So, so we have
1: uh, this interesting perspective. Um, you've got guys like uh, Dr. Gundry who basically say, you know, probably a lectin-free vegan keto. Cyclical diet is, is, really, is really the bee's knees. And what I'm hearing from you is basically a low protein, mostly ketogenic, carnivore diet is, is the way to go. And- I would say moderate protein, not low protein. Okay, yeah, moderate protein, fine. And what you heard me saying is a low to moderate protein, non-lectin, cyclical ketogenic diet is the way to go and you have to pick the vegetables based on your own biology, including uh, your gut bacteria and just including what works and what doesn't work. How would someone listening to the show possibly sort out these opinions from two people with medical credentials and one unlicensed biohacker?
2: I think that they have to see what works for them. I would say, man, Anyone listening to the show, if you do any one of those three things, you are going to feel great. You're in the you top two percent
1: of health anywhere. Yeah, and the you rest cannot. Of go, okay.
2: <laughs> you cannot go wrong. You know, you cannot go wrong. I think, like I said, maybe this brings it full circle. I think that a lot of people who go on the carnivore diet are either very curious about, you know, how they're going to feel doing this, or they're very sick. You know, and yeah. I think that. One of the tools that I suggested or one of the sort of rubrics I suggested in the beginning was this idea of elimination diets. And I think that people don't need to start with carnivore if they're super curious, some sort of an elimination diet. You yeah. could do a well-constructed bulletproof diet, you can do a well-constructed well, paleo diet, is you can elimination, do elimination,
1: but uh, right. I, if someone googles an elimination diet though, I, I just want to be really clear. The traditional and and the things you'll read about elimination diets, they take one to two years and they have these incredibly complex, you can only eat something from this family once every four days and like, it's the most horrible, unwieldy thing. Even I couldn't do that. So here's the, eliminate everything that's probably ever been shown to cause a problem. Just eliminate all of them for two weeks. There's your elimination diet. And you know an easy way to do that? Just eat meat. It's probably the most extreme elimination diet either because unless meat's the problem, you've eliminated everything that's the problem. And if your life changes, like, aha! Uh-huh. Maybe I could eat meat plus, and then you could try something else, right? And you can exactly. add things back in until you hit the wall.
2: And, and just eat animals, yeah. though. Just eat animals, not just meat. Just eat animals. Yep,
1: I just those, put the those whole the thing tail. in a blender, make a smoothie. It works.
2: <laughs> <interesting>. <laughs> get some liver. Get some liver. Right. You need those nutrients. You Man, need I, the collagen. We talked about it so much, Dave. <laughs> I want to. I want to keep going.
1: I got one more. One more question for you. Is there a kind of animal you just wouldn't eat?
2: I mean. I think that ruminant animals seem to provide incredible nutrition for humans. I can't think of any animal that I would not eat, honestly. I will note that it seems to me that ruminants provide really rich nutrition, and I eat probably 99% ruminants at this point. Ruminants are good. I probably would not eat some fish that are just, I mean, at this point on the Earth, I would not eat many fish because they are so toxic with metals, Mm. right? Theoretically, in the history of the earth, no, I can't think of any animal that I wouldn't eat, honestly.
1: That, I have a hard time with that one. I, I wouldn't eat, you know, elephants because it's mean and, you know, baby seal soup or something like that. That's just, okay, there's like, there's animals, there aren't enough of them, so let's not do that.
2: But you um, would eat a woolly mammoth with me if we were alive a million years oh, ago.
1: Heck yeah, I'd, you know, ah. smack that guy right on the head with my club. And, right. <laughs> and then I would get killed. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, a long time ago, and there were plenty, sure. Um, the other thing is, as a, as I think about it, uh, it's pythons. Uh, I've eaten python once, and it was such a horrible experience because I'm like, I'll, I'll eat. Yeah, I believe in eating from nature, and they're they're an invasive species. And when I did the research after choking down this horrible thing, it's like imagine the worst eel you've or not eel squid you've ever had, uh, ten thousand times rubberier and tastes a little bit more like chicken. And no matter what you do to it, it's just hard to eat. And then after you eat it, you, you realize that those things accumulate every metal and every pesticide better than almost anything. Uh, and so they're just toxic. So if, if you're really tempted to go smoke a python in your, in your Weber grill, um, maybe, maybe there's packs. a better choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. On that weird note, uh, your website is paulsaladinomd.com, your brand new podcast, Fundamental Health. I had a lot of fun chatting. You know what you're talking about. I still think you should go eat some go eat some broccoli already.
2: Oh, man, I'm just going to I'm <laughs> going to You know what, Dave? I'm going to save the broccoli for you. I, I'm going to have some uh, I'm going to have some meat and fat and liver when we get off this call.
1: Uh well, I will also eat some pork belly from a pig I raised myself and I will not feel too guilty about it.
2: I think that sounds amazing. I'm coming over for dinner.
1: You're welcome anytime if you're on Vancouver Island. I do think at this point I can say I have some of the best meat on the planet, at least if it's lamb or or pork.
2: I'm gonna be there, brother. I'm coming. Have a
1: beautiful day and enjoy sunny San Diego.
2: Thank you, sir.
0: A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.